Welcome to uh, the week seven lecture in Rare Book School. It's a pleasure to have Ken Carpenter lecturing here. Ken Carpenter is fixed in my mind for two accomplishments, although he has many others. He ran what was, to me, the most successful RBMS free conference ever in Boston in 1980. I have a special affection for it because I helped pay for it, to be sure. Uh, the 1978 Yale conference on a budget of 30,000 ran a preposterous surplus of $22,000. And because we had way more people than we expected, and Beverly Lynch, always quick on the draw, said, go to ALA and say that you want $15,000 of the surplus for an international conference in 1980. And ALA said, you must never do this again and gave us, I think, $12,000, which paid for nine foreign speakers. And that's why uh, many of you have seen uh, Books and Culture and Society, is that right? Which is the published proceedings of that conference. It's almost the only RBMS pre-conference that's ever been published in book form because the nine lectures or eight lectures that you typically get in an RBMS pre-conference isn't quite long enough for a book, especially when you eliminate one or two of the papers for one reason or another. The other accomplishment uh, that I always think of with regard to Ken Carpenter is that until recently, and for some years, he was the editor of the Harvard Library Bulletin, which when he edited it was uh, not only the only library bulletin that I am aware of that was readable at the time, but in my experience, it is the only library bulletin that has ever been readable in the history of the world. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to this podium tonight, uh, talking about uh, oaks and acorns in the history of American research libraries. Kenneth Carpenter. Yes, it's oaks and acorns, but it's whether oaks inevitably, uh, or whether acorns inevitably become oaks. And, uh, and what I'm going to be arguing tonight is that it is not an inevitable thing, and instead the story of America's learned, instead of the story being one of inevitability, uh, it can be seen as consisting of a series of, of turning points. I, I thank Terry for that for that introduction, and 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 uh, uh, I noticed that last night he was brave enough to to speak after wine and and dinner, and I'm so grateful that he's put me on before wine tonight. Uh, I've been working on this uh, history on this work for about three and a half years, thanks to support of the Davies Project at Princeton as well as uh, a small grant from the Council on Library and Information Resources. I've been able to spend a major portion of my time gathering the printed resources for a study of the history of learned libraries and traveling to see relevant archival material in, in, in a number of institutions, uh, Yale and uh, uh, New York Libraries, Library of Congress, Michigan, Illinois, and of course at at Harvard as well. So I'm delighted to have this opportunity to present this overall sketch of what I perceive uh, to have happened. Uh, 
Around 1850, three American libraries were formed explicitly as libraries of learning in the service of scholars. These were the Smithsonian, the Astor, and, and, and the Boston Public Library. These were new institutions. Already existing libraries had been unable to transform themselves. Harvard, Yale, Brown, Michigan, and perhaps others did buy some collections and did occasionally send someone abroad to buy books, and they solicited gifts. But these methods were not sufficient to create a library for scholarship. In this era, when learned culture was primarily outside of academia in the public arena, that's where some other promising efforts were made. And, and there was one uh, in 1826 at the Boston Athenaeum, which joined a newly formed uh, organization called the Scientific Association to seek funds for purchasing sets of transactions of European uh, scientific societies. Note that science was the impetus. Why did these efforts fail? Money, of course, but why no money? There was a lack of understanding in the first place of what a great library is, its purpose, and how to form it. A library was seen as a place for storing books for general reading. In early America, a library was also seen as a one-off creation, not an ongoing work. In other words, the conception fit the resources. It was also thought that gifts could be the primary engine of growth, and the successive Alexander Vatmar, who came to the United States in 1839 and proposed exchanges and was able to, to get hearings before state legislatures and even the uh, Congress. Also holding back library development was a failure to understand the very process of research. Books were to be read, a few even mastered, but they were not something to be uh, scanned uh, in the search for the kind of information scholars use. Except for Gerdingen, there were also no models to imitate or compete with. Thus, the idea of a learned library had to be constructed. The most detailed attempt was in 1838 by Robert Bridges Patton, who said that 800,000 would be needed. That was real money in those days. He argued from many angles that this country was becoming the seat of the war between Christianity and her foes, American nationalism as well, but also on the need simply for Americans to be able to carry out profound and extensive research. In 1850 in Cambridge, a collector and supporter of many libraries, George Livermore, wrote an important article for the North American Review in which he tried to clear away misconceptions. He pointed out that American self-satisfaction with their libraries because of the vast number of them, and there were about 10,000 American libraries before 1876, uh, the, 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 the self-satisfaction was unjustified since the libraries had largely the same books. He also argued that having the best books was not the same as having a library for research. And like Patton before him, Livermore also argued on the grounds of the public interest making a library desirable, even for those who did not directly benefit from it. Factors leading to consciousness of the desirability need of learned libraries were that Americans had really become aware that there had been a vast growth in the publishing of scholarly material in Europe. And indeed, in addition to journals of national scientific societies, there had been many offshoots uh, in subfields. A new attitude toward the role of information in the public sphere seems also to 
have been a part of an awakening recognition. The new attitude toward the dissemination of information began in Britain, where governments turned to gathering and disseminating information and the belief that doing so would heighten support for their policies. In effect, the British government decided that if it could not suppress communication, the next best option was to disseminate. And the first explicit statement of the rationale and benefit for this was made in the first issue of the transactions of the Royal Statistical Society in 1837. Not very long after that, the British uh, uh, government also uh, made enough funds available to start transforming the British Museum Library. And the same pattern occurred in France, which supports my supposition of the relationship between the desire to disseminate and the desire to support libraries. In this country, I don't happen to find that, that connection explicitly stated, though state libraries did begin during this period. I will, however, go back over the writings on libraries, including the debates over the, uh, over the Smithsonian uh, in Congress and see if I can find it there. Funds, of course, were the crucial things that we needed, and three possibilities existed. One was federal financing. And thanks to the bequest of the Englishman James Smithson in 1826, a library was a possibility. Terms of the bequest called for it to be used for the increase and in diffusion of knowledge. In 1840s, the library, uh, the Congress debated and established an institution that would both uh, pursue scientific inquiry and, and uh, build a library. Charles Coffin Jewett, the first librarian, formerly librarian of Brown and compiler of a printed catalog, was fixated on saving the enormous cost of producing printed catalogs. He had a scheme for stereotyping cataloging entries, which could then be used again and again by various libraries to reduce costs. Also, the technology, but, but the technology for producing these catalog entries failed. And anyway, the first secretary of the Smithsonian, the physicist Joseph Henry, fired Jewett in 1854. He wanted the money for scientific research alone. Whereas the Smithsonian was the creation of the, of the federal government, its funding, of course, originated in private wealth. And in New York, another rich man was about to establish a learned library. John Jacob Astor died in March 1848, and his will contained a provision of 400000 for a library. He cut uh, patents uh, some in half. The Astor Library created for the first time an endowed library of learning. Librarian Joseph Green Cogswell was thus enabled to become the first librarian who could plan long-term upon system. The third major library established during this period was the Boston Public. Now the fact that the BPL circulated the, quote, pleasant literature of the day has been much emphasized. But when it opened in 1854, it was also a research library. In fact, it had two halls. One was an upper hall, and one was a lower hall. George Tickner, who was instrumental in shaping the library, had been a student at Göttingen, and finally he got the library that he'd wanted ever since. The city basically paid for popular reading and gifts for the research materials. In the case of the BPL, uh, $50,000 was provided by an American-born merchant in London, and thus the BPL also existed through uh, the support of a wealthy individual. Others also gave funds and materials 
to a greater extent than to the Astor. In fact, the BPO became, one might say, a collective enterprise. And at least in the early decades, it was one in which the popular part did not submerge the scholarly. The formula of the BPO worked because the popular part was so, in, was so integral to it. The Astor always aroused hostility, often publicly expressed, over its non-circulation of books and its hours. It was open to the accusation of being elitist, a charge from which learned libraries have never been immune. Patton in, third, in 1838 had felt it necessary to deal with that issue. He did so by arguing that in making expensive, in making available expensive books, a library was, to use a modern cliche, leveling the playing field. In giving the person without wealth the access to books that would otherwise be available only to the wealthy, the Library of Learning fostered equality of opportunity. It was democratic. And the more expensive books it bought, the more democratic it was. In fact, many of the most expensive books were scientific and technological material for practical, everyday ones of people. And these, these, it was argued, are inherently an equalizer of opportunity. These books, it should be added, were, of course, much needed in a country that was then building its infrastructure. One can say that the Astor and the BPL emphasized collecting materials for Americans to learn from Europe. In addition to technology, the BPL also emphasized government documents. What I do not find in the annual reports of either of these institutions is an, is an explicit statement of a desire to collect everything printed, an idea that did, however, surface from time to time, from 1835 on. The basic rationale there was that in collecting everything, the library was preserving the voices of the common man. I believe that the BPL did collect on this principle, but without saying so. Of the Astor and BPL, Daniel Coit Gilman, the, who became president, uh, the founding president of Johns Hopkins, wrote in 1862, all our other libraries have been cast into the shade by these new lights. Thus, it's not surprising that in the third paragraph of the report of a committee of Harvard alumni appointed in 1857 to review the library, the Astor is specifically mentioned, though the report notes, in no spirit of rivalry. Well, certainly not. Certainly not. Harvard was indeed far from being able to be a rival. The committee reported that Harvard had a mere $527 a year to spend on books. But then, two years later, an alumnus promised 5,000 for each of the next five years, and he specified that new books be favored for purchase. Thus, 1859 is the first year when Harvard was systematically buying new books. And, and I believe that this is the first time that a university library systematically acquired new books in this country. Perhaps not, I think so. When the $5,000 ran out during the Civil War, the Harvard Library was back at $500 a year. Yale, if anything, was worse off. <laughs> Yale's librarian, Daniel Coit Gilman, described the situation in his 1865 resignation letter. Improvements and, ex and changes which have long been talked of as essential to the progress of the library. By long, he meant nine years. The increase of the funds for the purchase of books, the employment of permanent assistance, the introduction of a heating apparatus, 
the opening of a quiet reading room, the consolidation of the society libraries, and other minor alternations seem to be no nearer than when I entered upon the office of librarian. Moreover, I am not able to support a family on the salary paid to the librarian. <laughs> President Woolsey's response was basically that Gilman was right to resign since things were not going to change anytime soon. Of course, the situation did change, but slowly. Gifts for endowments were made, the institution grew, and that meant more tuition income. And there were changes outside that, that subsequently were, were, were helpful. The, the book trade infrastructure came into place with book trade journals. And some people began to see librarianship as a career in, that involved uh, moves from one position to another. So change there was in the period from the 1850s to the 1890s, but it was basically an era of small things. Academic librarians took over the public library ethos of service to readers, and they eased rules, and late in the century did open the stacks to some degree. And sometimes they were able to obtain the resources to, make, to uh, open on Sunday, to have evening hours, to create you know, separate seminar libraries, and in some cases even publish lists of holdings. In collections, the emphasis was on serials, especially scientific ones. The libraries were basically for instruction with funds being allocated to various departments and always, I believe, under the control of faculty library committees. Limited funds made this an era of the best books, which was in accordance with the large number of manuals about what to read that were published during this period. President Angel, I assume that's how you pronounce his name, uh, of the University of Michigan, was typical in stating in 1883, here in our quiet library halls, the revered masters of science and philosophy and song condescend to sit with us as guides, inspirers and friends. Here our university senate role expands until it adds them all to our core of teachers. Yes, books were teachers, and the task of the library was to make them available for students. Advocates of libraries for research were the exception. Outside of academia, another path was developing, though. What Steve Ferguson, and Steve works uh, on, the, uh, 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 on the Davies Project with Harold Shapiro. What Steve, Steve has suggested this might be called what was developing a culture of book appreciation with books more than tools of instruction. Thus, the Lennox Library, the first rare book library, was established in 1870, though not opened until the 1880s. The Peabody Institute Library, formed in 1867, another of the efforts by a wealthy individual. It moved into rare book collecting in 1875. In 1884, the Astor made explicit that it was collecting rare books and said why. That their presence would raise and refine the character of the country. And the Newbury, almost immediately after its founding, that is in 1888, was buying the first edition of Luther's New Testament translation, the first edition of the King James Bible and Inconabula. The culture of book appreciation was, of course, not connected solely with libraries. The Goyer Club, the first of the collector's clubs, was established in 1884. Such organizations nourished the collectors so often, starting, I believe, in the 1920s, placed their books in libraries. 
The 1890s were a turning point for academic libraries in parallel with universities. One part of the turning point was the formation of learned societies. But, but, in, but the crux, I believe, for libraries at least, was that Americans sought as never before to learn about the rest of the world, not simply from Western Europe. This meant moving beyond scholarly books into publications that were basically source material for understanding other cultures. The, this expansion beyond the non-traditional was strikingly attested by a statement of Alfred Potter, who was in charge of building collections in the Central Harvard <coughs> Library. In the 1899-90 report, he advocated an annual appropriation for current events, meaning events abroad, and a significant portion of the growth of American libraries over the last hundred years has consisted primarily of such uh, 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 materials, of source materials for studying European, other, studying other cultures. Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Cornell, uh, all began to acquire Slavic, Chinese, Scandinavian, and even Arabic materials. And at the New York Public Library, so Slavonic, Oriental, and Semitic departments were established around the turn of the century, thus making programmatic the development of international collections. In the mid-1890s, the Library of Congress, too, changed from being basically American. The new librarian, as of July 1897, John Russell Young, appealed especially to national pride, or one might say, the American competitive spirit. Then he died in mid-January 1899, succeeded by Herbert Putnam, librarian of the BPL. By 1904, the budget for materials at LC was nearly 100,000, as compared to about 5,000 in 1897. And Putnam's early great acquisitions were an extraordinary 80,000 volume collection of, of, of Russian books, as well as 9,000 Japanese books. In that accelerated pace of buying, it's not hard to see the influence, of course, of the Spanish-American War, but then of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. Or perhaps better put, the fact that President Teddy Roosevelt arranged for the war's peace treaty to be negotiated in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. That guaranteed Americans read every day and saw themselves as, as a significant player on the world stage. As libraries became more important, important people became involved with them as collectors of material. Harvard may be the most notable example, with Harvard graduates often in diplomatic posts around the world obtaining materials from governments. This seems to mark another stage in the development of libraries becoming a collective enterprise. There's another sign of libraries becoming important. University presidents, who by this time had increasingly become primarily overseers of the wise use of university resources, put in charge trusted individuals who could see to the abandonment of amateurish methods of administration, as it was put. A faculty member was made director in 1898 at the University of Pennsylvania, 1899 Columbia, 1905 Yale, 1910 Harvard, also 1910 University of Chicago. Harvard's president from 1869 to 1909, Charles William Eliot, had an even more radical solution, control costs by, by limiting library growth. Encouraged by John Shaw Billings of the New York Public Library, Eliot, Elliot of the five-foot shelf, proposed that university libraries should primarily serve instruction, not research. And in 1904, he instructed librarian William Coolidge Lane 
to rely on the Boston Public Library for research materials. In fact, the BPO was at that time actually buying research material, was even buying medieval manuscripts. As for the, quote, dead books, to use Eliot's term, already in the Harvard Library, these, he argues, should be placed in a regional library center, and he envisaged several such throughout the country. As we know, Eliot failed. It would have been a tragedy, I believe, if he had succeeded, not because cooperation is bad, but because of his motivation. It was not cooperative effort to accomplish more, to further scholarship, but rather to limit the university's responsibility and its cost. E.C. Richardson of Princeton, uh, the Princeton Library, did about a decade later propose that L.C. be provided with the means to establish uh, uh, five uh, centers around the country and to deposit in each a reference and lending copy of all the more important books. Now this proposal also uh, uh, came to naught, but it had come about because Richardson had documented the appalling fact that 736 out of 786 supposed institutions of higher education had fewer than 1% of the published European documentary collections. And of course his idea was totally out of sync with America's decentralization and limited central government. Individual library entrepreneurship has been our pattern. As for Eliot's proposal, the irony is that it came to naught, I think, for the reason that there was no extra money to spare to set it up. In other words, the perennial problem of library resources being stretched to the limit doomed Eliot's plan. Such was also the case with librarian efforts to rationalize collecting, which began in the first decade of the 20th century. Spearheaded initially by E.C. Richardson and then post-war by his successor, James T. Uh, Gerould, their view was that the libraries of the country should specialize in order to increase the sum total of resources available to American scholarship, scholars. But there were no adequate resources to put into specialized collections without taking them away from existing allocations. That would have, de that would have been necessary by, uh, for fa faculty members would have had to have consented. And Jewell tried to get such consent and also work to work with learned societies, but without success. To be sure, some institutions in a particular geographic area have divided up responsibilities. But until the Farmington Plan of 1850, which did not last all that long, there was no national effort with even a modicum of success. What has had an effect on resources has been publications recording them. The irony being, though, that they served primarily as a guide to buying rather than to specializing. The most notable instance was the Union List of Serials and other such publications. The ULS also shows concretely why cooperative plans have been so difficult to carry out. They require money, and that has always been in short supply, to emphasize once again. Behind the ULS was Harry Miller Leidenberg, responsible for the 42nd Street Research Library, the NYPL. To pay for publication, he needed 40 libraries to subscribe $300 for each of three years. This was in 1920. Only a handful of librarians, university or public, had the resources and power to subscribe. Most had to go to their faculty library committee to get permission, or to the president and trustees in hope of a special appropriation. For many, the only possibility was to form a local consortium to share in the subscription cost. Leidenberg also had another problem to weep over, 
paying for compilation. The four libraries with the largest holdings were, of course, LC, Harvard, Yale, and New York Public. They'd all have to spend many thousands of dollars. Leidenberg could take care of, uh, of New York Public, and he knew that he could count on his, on his friend Keough at Yale. But still, that left LC and Harvard, both of which absolutely had to be included. He finally obtained 10000 from the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial, directed by Beardsley Rummel for work at LC, but Rummel flatly and emphatically refused to help Harvard. Eventually, Leidenberg poached on Harvard donors to raise the money, and it's a fascinating story that I'd like to tell someday. The widespread but not universal absence of funds in the 1920s is not what I expected. After all, the Great War had confirmed that the United States was a world power. Some even saw the United States as responsible for preserving Western civilization. I expected that I would find the Rockefeller Foundations and the Carnegie Corporation major supporters of libraries. They, in fact, were, just not of American libraries. Libraries abroad. Somewhere around eight and a half million dollars went to libraries abroad. The major gift in the U.S. was 250000 to L.C. for Project B, what became the National Union Catalog. Why was this? Basically, I don't know. The foundations were giving a lot to universities. Before the war, the Rockefeller Foundation would believe that the way to advance knowledge was to establish separate institutions, Rockefeller University. But after the war, it saw the possibility of working with the universities and and gifts that it made and that Carnegie made common, you know, led to uh, endowments commonly being doubled or more between 1919 and 1929. And some of this money, of course, did trickle down to libraries and institutions such as Columbia. The foundations were asked, that I know, though not formally. And in January of 1931, William Warner Bishop, librarian of Michigan, also sought the support of Waldo G. Leland, Secretary of the American Council of Learned Societies. Bishop advocated giving a half dozen universities an endowment of 20000 or 25000 for Chinese materials. Perhaps this proposal was behind Leland's letter then of March, a few months later, to Keppel of Carnegie. I am glad that your opinion confirms my own as to the desirability of this council's keeping out of assisting in building up collections. I can see that we might quickly get into difficulties if we should adopt such a course. Unfortunately, the Carnegie Corporation had, had weeded a lot of correspondence, so I don't have both sides of this correspondence. Possibly the problem was that no overall plan was presented. Carl Milam, the secretary of the ALA during the 20s and 30s, would have been the logical proposer, but he advocated to foundations for public libraries, not for learned libraries. No group existed for learned libraries uh, until the, uh, the mid-30s. The absence of a process for evaluating requests may have been crucial given Keppel's long-standing concern over not building up a staff. But perhaps even libraries were seen as the responsibility of wealthy individuals. That would not have been unreasonable. After all, the Huntington Library was founded in 1919 and opened in 28. The Morgan Library made public in 1924. The Folger, 1932. Universities were receiving collections and buildings. Clements at Michigan, 23, and the Clark. 
1934. And these gifts were only the most visible manifestation of money and materials flowing to libraries for collections, so much so that the 1920s for many libraries was a, a turning point. And the establishment of Friends of the Library Organizations beginning in the 1920s was a sign that libraries were an institution alumni were willing to fund. The culture of book appreciation that had been developing outside universities moved inside them. And increasingly, institutions also became concerned with typography and illustrated books. There have been fashions in the collecting of rare books, just as there have been fashions in the collecting uh, of other kinds of material. Perhaps the Friends organizations might be seen as representing efforts to provide the book appreciators with appreciation by their peers, that is, other collectors and bibliophiles. Some librarians also became peers. They began to be curators with direct responsibility for rare books. Perhaps George Parker Winship, curator of the Widener Rooms in the Widener Memorial Library, was the first in a university in 1915, exactly when other institutions established rare book collections with curators or why and by what stages remains to be worked out. Behind the library building that was going on in the alumni involvement was a struggle for prestige with, to the winners, going more money and more prestige and more money. And the struggle for alma mater was being fought not just on the athletic fields. Moreover, the times were right for tangible benefits to be readily visible the bad economic times in Europe and the Russian desire for hard currency, uh, along with the general dislocation of war, created unusual opportunities for buying abroad. It's important to note that university presidents as well became part of this collective enterprise of building library collections. And definitely Butler at Columbia and Angel at Yale. Although the struggle for prestige and the desire to express love for alma mater was important, Isser also believed in excellence, even to the degree of believing that genius should be particularly cultivated. Some universities were becoming meritocracies, and with the goal being cultivation of intellect, not character, it was natural to build libraries. Furthering my supposition of a connection between libraries and this emphasis on excellence, is that Princeton's Institute for Advanced Studies, formed during this period, began to acquire research materials independently of the research library. And its director, who had been a foundation uh, official, even obtained one of the few foundation gifts for a collection, the just collection um, of Chinese literature. The success of academia during the 20s did, however, create its own problem, one we know today, a crisis in scholarly publishing. The Council of Learned Societies formed in 1929 a Committee on Materials of Research, meaning scholarly books. The Social Science Research Council joined in so as to be sure that all kinds of social science data and sources were preserved. Thus, the two organizations agreed on a joint committee. Besides looking into scholarly publishing, the committee aimed to survey America's total equipment for materials for research in the social sciences and humanities. This committee makes the 30s another turning point, and, and, and not because of the mere fact of financial stringency. Throughout the decade, it was chaired by a brilliant young European historian at Western Reserve, Robert C. Binkley, who had been, while doing graduate work at Stanford, reference, reference librarian at the Hoover Institution. 
Binkley argued that the problem with scholarly publishing resulted from increasing specialization when scholarship was, was limited uh, to a small area Scholars generally wanted the same books, and letterpress was ideally suited to supplying that demand. But as specialization grew, markets diminished, and letterpress could no longer provide material. So he argued that the thing to do was to look at the various methods of reproduction, including at the extreme for the smallest number, microfilm, and to fit the method of reproduction to the demand. And in 1936, he produced an extraordinary manual it outlines the various methods of reproduction and their cost. And the copy is in the Science Library here at Virginia. The story of the Joint Committee is much too rich to be told here, so let it suffice that Binkley's hand was in much that happened in the 30s, microfilming, union catalogs, the historical records survey, an increasing emphasis on archives and local historical manuscripts, and the collecting of local and state documents, as well as federal. The committee acted as a kind of council on library resources. He also turned to much that might have borne fruit had he not died in his early 40s in 1940. He developed a methodology for indexing newspapers, and, uh, and there are samples of it. Uh, uh, there's a 30-odd volume uh, index to Cleveland newspapers. He had extensive correspondence with McLeish over L.C. taking responsibility for developing comprehensive collections. And just before his death, he was in touch with Vannevar Bush, over Bush's machine for indexing microfilm. Bush's post-war description of it is seen as providing the inspiration for hypertext, and it draws extensively on, on, on what uh, Binkley had written about uh, 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 the, the public utility uh, of, uh, of making stuff available for local history. And it's tempting to speculate that had Binkley lived, computerization would have proceeded faster and with an emphasis on the scholarly purposes of the technology. Without Binkley's presence, though, libraries employed technology primarily to help with library problems, such as saving space or reducing cataloging costs, rather than in furthering the dissemination of resources for scholarly purposes, those in pressures, pressures. In effect, libraries did not have the funds to do otherwise. For example, Kais Metcalf, while still at the New York Public, had drawn up a plan in the mid-30s for libraries to produce, reproduce STC books on film. But only outside libraries in the commercial world were the resources available to use microfilm technology on a widespread basis for scholarly purposes, resulting in the fact that they also control access to the resources and now do so in, in digital form. After World War II, American libraries had a period of unprecedented wealth. Many universities were able to transform themselves in the process building great collections. Internationalization also sped up. Behind that were joint area studies committees of the ACLS and the SSRC, and these scholars were able to do what librarians could not. They were able to raise significant sums of money from foundations in support of acquisitions from various parts of the world. The Ford Foundation also provided funds to create the Council on Library and Information and Library Resources in 1955. What the scholars were able to, to draw on in obtaining funding was not just a desire for scholarship per se, but rather the mobilization of universities and libraries in this country to preserve civilization itself, as it was seen after the, the Cold War began. Indeed, after Sputnik was launched, this struggle intensified. 
and uh, as, as we know with the uh, PL 480 program, Title IIc, the creation of the um, uh, NEH and more. Although library collections grew, there were great financial pressures on libraries and on their parent institutions to catalog, to find space, to uh, pay the staff. Thus came another turning point. Ever-rising costs that outstripped resources were surely behind formation of the Research Libraries Group in 1973, perhaps as well behind formation of the Independent Research Libraries Association in 72. With the oil crisis of 73, the end of optimism in higher education definitely ended. Library growth declined in the 1980s and 90s, or library funding relatively declined. With an increasing emphasis on technology grew funds from print collections. Then in many places there was sharp decline during the turn of the 20th century to the 21st, and even at Harvard, we may have seen only the first of a series of layoffs. Just as ideology played a role in the creation of libraries of learning in the 19th century, so as ideology functioned to foster a decrease in resources relative to the ever enlarged tasks facing libraries. Libraries simply are not valued as they had been for their role in serving the scholar, and it's not just the internet to be blamed. For example, the ACLS was crucially involved in establishing a national commission on libraries and information sciences, and its first 1974 report stated the commission's firm belief that recorded knowledge is a national resource and its nationwide use a national responsibility. Look now at the website for the National Commission and you'll find no involvement at all with libraries of learning. The pressure for federal funding, as in preservation, uh, is uh, 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 the pressure for it to be distributed geographically, uh, geographically is another sign of libraries of learning no longer being seen as a public good serving the entire nation. And within our libraries for scholars, within our academic libraries, the emphasis has shifted to the needs of students, not scholars. Precisely the opposite of the 19th century shift, which had behind it the idea that if you serve scholars, you're going to necessarily serve the students as well. Thus, in the Harvard College Library, the correct language is now to write about the collections, first of all, as a resource for instruction, and then to add the scholarly community. It is even possible that those who manage our major libraries has have, have as their model, many of them anyway, uh, have as their model and their image of library use, the undergraduate library stemming from their own undergraduate use. That is, after all, the library use they have personally experienced. The diminution of the emphasis on the scholar is not confined to printed books. As a report from the year 2000 entitled LC21, a digital strategy for the Library of Congress had this to say about LC's own digitization project. The American Memory Project has emphatically and purposely not addressed the scholarly user. The de-emphasis on the scholarly has been paralleled by library and university administrators on a search for opportunities to cut costs. That's, thus, in the 1970s and 80s, they advocated resource sharing without, however, ensuring that the resources were going to be available to share. Argument by slogan has become the norm, and the more recent version has been access, not ownership. Another catchphrase, last copy policy, seems to have come into use to permit discarding material without a bad conscience. 
but perhaps I'm being too generous. It may be. It may be that in our realistic consciousness that all cannot be retained and preserved, definitely not in one place, we've just given up concern over preserving the past. And it happened long ago. Here's a quote from an article in Library Journal in 1966. If individual libraries cannot acquire all of the scholarly record, they also cannot keep everything they have already collected. Of course, there's no logical connection between the inability to inquire and the inability to keep. Alas, as a librarian put it the other week in a conversation, librarians are no longer concerned with what to acquire. Their focus is on what not to acquire, what to get rid of. Notice in the quote from 1966 that the libraries equated with the scholarly record. Yet great libraries are more than keepers of the scholarly record. I believe that there's been a narrowing of what appropriately constitutes learned library resources in parallel with the change in who they should serve. The inadequacy of library funding is not a consequence of the digital. It's not a war between digital and print. I'm suggesting that the digital is being used, though, as a mask to suggest inevitability. After all, we can't fight technology, can we? So I'd like to leave you with the idea that the great development of our libraries was not inevitable, not a case of oaks from acorns, and perhaps the decline of the means to both preserve the past and to make what has been collected available digi digitally is also not inevitable. Thank you. Armageddon. <laughs> if you'd all like to drown your sorrows in wine, we will adjourn to the first floor staff lounge in Alderman Library. <laughs>